You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Tim Abbott on Sunday, July 11th, 2021 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. Well, good morning again. My name is Tim. I am one of the pastors here. It is uh, truly a joy to be able to gather together with you. Uh, We are in week two of three of a short series entitled Together. As we have dealt with COVID and distancing in some manner for so long, we are still in many ways just getting back to the rhythm of being together as the church. And before COVID, We were two different congregations that met in two different places on Sunday morning, and we have now come together as one. And and for many of you, you have joined us in the midst of all of this, and so you are still adjusting to what does it mean to be a part of Redemption Hill. And so we are spending three weeks in Psalm 122, seeing what it has to say to us about God and about what it means to be together as his people. Um, I've heard from a number of you this past week that are memorizing this psalm. That's wonderful. Others have simply printed it out and are reading it each, each day. I would encourage you to continue that. Um, hopefully, you've considered uh, someone you can invite in uh, to this with you as Psalm 122 starts with an invitation uh, to come together. And so I hope that you've at least considered and are thinking about um, who you can invite in. Uh, to, to enjoy Sunday mornings, to enjoy the feast that God has prepared for us. Um, as we talked about last week, Psalm 122 is, is one of the 15 Psalms of Ascent. All of Israel would go three times a year. They would go together. They would travel to one of three great feasts. They would go there to celebrate the Most High God and to celebrate what He had done uh, in their lives and for them as a people. And they would sing these these psalms, these psalms of ascent, they would sing them as, as a way to prepare themselves for the feast that was being together with God's people in his presence. These songs were a way to prepare their hearts and minds uh, to literally go up to Jerusalem, but also to lead their hearts up to God in worship. Last week, we spent time considering why is it important that we gather together each week as the church. And we saw in verse 1, David talking about how going with God's people to be with God, to praise Him, made his heart leap for joy. And that for us today, we should be just as excited about faithfully and consistently being together with God's people and attending the Sunday morning gathering. We saw that God had prepared a feast for His people and has invited us to come and enjoy it. And so we get a glimpse every week at the eternal feast that God has prepared for His people. We get to come together. We get to pray together, as, as Demetrius led us earlier. We get to welcome one another. We get to sing praises together. We get to hear God's word together, and we get to be sent out together. We have an incredible feast waiting for us each week in, in church, in this church, and hopefully we see the goodness of coming together faithfully and with joy, and hopefully we will invite others into that as well. We need to remind each other that we are excited to be able to do this together. We need to know that someone is excited that we're here. But as the church, we don't just gather together. We don't just check off the box that says we came on Sunday morning and then we just go back to our normal lives. No, the the church 
is, is something much bigger than that. We gather together with the church because God has formed us together as his church. And we want to be together with God's people. And verses 2 through 5 of Psalm 122 help us understand what that means, how that shapes our lives, how we see one another. A couple of years ago, uh, we took our kids to Disney World. We took them in early June. Perfect timing. Every kid in the country had just gotten out of school, and it was 110 degrees. And so uh, that's when we decided to go. Uh, I remember, I think it was the second day, we were there waiting in line for nearly 90 minutes to ride a three-minute-long Winnie the Pooh ride. And you can judge me all you want, uh, but for all of those minutes, my three-year-old little girl just kept screaming, I see Tigger, I see Tigger, with more joy than I've ever felt about anything. So it was totally worth it. So we are standing and waiting for 90 minutes in 150-degree heat, shoulder-to-shoulder, back-to-back, with 40,000 other people that just have to see Winnie the Pooh. And it's just... It's just too hot to be that close to anyone. And, and one of the guys near us has decided that everyone needs to hear him talk. And everyone needs to hear his conversation. And so as we pass honeypot after honeypot, I am being forced to hear this man's complaints about his work, his family, Florida, Disney, everything else in life. And so I turn to him and I say, you're too close, man. You, you are just too close, and you're loud, and I don't want to be near it anymore. No, I didn't say any of that. Uh, I, I, I said it in my mind like 11 times in that 90 minutes, but I knew if I said it out loud, I'm going to get kicked out of Winnie the Pooh, and my, wife, and, my, and my little girl will be in tears. My whole family will be in tears. Our individualistic hearts prefer to love people from a distance prefer to have some distance between us and others. We prefer to love people just enough to feel like we've done our duty of loving others. If we keep people at a distance, then we keep control. We get to keep our our autonomy. We avoid the risk of getting too close to others, even in the church. So many of us have this picture of our community. We have this picture of of our friends around a large table, laughing and having a good time. And, And that might be true at times. But many times in church, we find ourselves in relationships where we just want to turn and say, you're too close. I don't want to hear anything else about your life, about your complaints. I don't want to be that close to you. We prefer to have a church experience that we can control. We would rather just go to church on Sunday mornings and keep our distance from the others around us. But God's plans are much higher and better than our own. He has brought us close together as the church. He is doing this. It is happening. He has brought us close, at times uncomfortably close, closer than we would really choose to be. But as we see God at work in the lives of those around us, Hopefully, that will lead us to start to rejoice, as David does, that God has brought his people close together. David says in verse 1, my heart rejoiced when when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. And now his joy is building as he proclaims in verses 2 and 3, our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. This is the moment that you've been waiting and preparing for, that trip that you've been longing for, that vacation 
that you've waited months for. And you get there and you can look around and see the beauty of it and say, we're actually here. And David looks at it and says, we are actually here. We are finally here in Jerusalem. Our feet are actually standing inside the gates of Jerusalem. And then David begins to look around and describes what he sees in verse 3. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely built together, a city that is bound firmly together. Literally, this verse says, a city that is at unity with itself. It is an amazing description. Church historians who describe Jerusalem wrote that Jerusalem was beautifully built. The houses are not scattered far away from each other. They are touching. They are built together. Each house, each part of the city was supporting the other parts. Each house was strengthening the other houses. Each stone was placed in the exact place that it needed to be. And as much as David was writing about Jerusalem, he was also writing about God's people. He was describing God's church, not a group of separate houses, but a city or a people that is built closely together, a people that are supporting and holding one another up, a people that are strengthening one another, a people that is at unity with itself. Peter in the New Testament gives us the New Testament version of this. The book of 1 Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Peter says, As you come to him, Christ, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. God is building us into a spiritual house together with Christ at the center of it all, the living stone that was rejected But he is alive, and because of that, we can now be alive and be a part of this house. There are a number of metaphors that the Bible uses to describe the church. The most commonly used are the family of God, the body of Christ, and the temple or the house of God. And each of those are meant to show us in unique ways how closely God has formed his people together. And while we love the use of language, we love the way it describes it, we love the descriptive way it it talks about God's people, we often miss the reality of what God has built for us. These are not empty metaphors. This isn't fanciful language to make the church sound more beautiful than it truly is. There is a reality to being the body of Christ, the family of God, the living church, God's house. The Apostle Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, understood this reality. He understood the reality of being God's people. This has become one of my favorite favorite passages over the past few years. His letter to the Thessalonian church has helped me in so many ways to understand how we can see this. When I am struggling with my own expectations of the church, my own distance that I want to have from people, I turn to this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 in the New Testament well, it, just, it just gives us a snapshot of how Paul views the church. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. In verse 1, he refers to the church as brothers and sisters. In verses 7 and 8, he says, Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. In verses 11 and 12, for you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God. 
in verse 17, but brothers and sisters, when we were torn away from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. He not only uses the language, but he then describes what that means. I was as a father to you, comforting you, encouraging you. I was as a a mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. We were delighted to share our lives with you. Brothers and sisters, we felt torn away from you. He uses this language 14 times for just referring to them as brothers and sisters. 20 times he uses family language just in this letter. Paul understood what it meant to be the family of God. Paul knew what it meant for the church to be built close together. Paul gives us another metaphor, the body of Christ, and one of the implications of what this actually means. How does this actually play out? 1 Corinthians 12, he is talking about the body of Christ. He shows us what it means to be close to one another when he says, whenever one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. There's a different passage in Romans that I like to talk about a lot that says we need to weep with those who weep. But in that passage, it comes across more as a command that we need to follow, something that we need to to do. But here, it is just a reality of how close God has brought us. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. He has brought us so close together, knit us so tightly together, that when one of us hurts, all of us hurt. That's why he said, I felt ripped or torn away from you when we weren't together. Why did he feel ripped away? Because God has built us close. We are all part of the same body, and it hurts to rip away a part of your body. It hurts when people leave a church for whatever reason they're leaving. It hurts. God builds us too close together to not feel that pain. Paul had left for good reasons, to go on mission to another church, and yet he felt ripped away. He felt the hurt. The body of Christ, the family of God, the house of God, these weren't empty metaphors to him. They were a reality that defined how he viewed his fellow Christians. They weren't just people he met with once a week. They were his family. You are our brothers and sisters. We were like a mother or a father caring for you. That is what it looks like when you actually start believing what God is saying. God's church is one body, one family. We are the stones that make up the house of God. We love the idea. We say it a lot that we just want to get close to God. We love the idea of getting close to God. But we hesitate and push back against the idea of getting too close to God's people. We are just so easily satisfied with surface level relationships that can just show up and not think about each other for the rest of the week after Sunday. It is vital to gather together here on Sunday mornings. But church, God's church, doesn't start at 8.15 on Sunday, and it doesn't end at noon on Sunday afternoon. God has brought his people close together, sometimes uncomfortably close together, closer than we want to be. If you are a part of this church, though, God has made us a part of his body. That is, that is not just close, that is inseparable. When God brings his people together, whether, whether we like it or not, you are made a part of the closest relationships in all existence. God made you one with him, and making you one with one another is a stronger bond than any of our other earthly relationships. Why? Because 
You have been made one with one another, and not even death will change that. Death will bring an end to our affinity groups, and it will be okay. But for those who have been saved by Christ in death, we will fully realize the unity that God has created for his people. That unity will be completed and perfected in eternity. And we will, with one voice, praise God forever and ever. In eternity, it will make our hearts rejoice that God has brought us so close together. And so we need to realize it's true. And as much as we need to realize it's true, the Bible also helps us to see that it is not natural and it is not easy. Ray Ortland, a pastor in Nashville, once said, Christians are like porcupines. We have a lot of fine points, but it's not easy to get close to them. Uh, Robert just finished preaching through 2 Timothy, where we are told to expect trials, told to expect difficulties. Why? Because of people. People are difficult. People are sinners. From the very beginning, we are all familiar with the story of Adam and Eve and and the first uh, original sin, eating the fruit that they were not told to eat. But the next major recorded sin after that, Cain kills Abel. Brother murders his own brother. We move from eating fruit we weren't supposed to eat to a brother killing his brother. That went fast. We can ask questions like, we can't, why can't we just all get along and lament how fractured our society is, and, and we should, but we should not be surprised. And we need to see that in Christ, we have something better, and we should live like we have something better. We are not just sinners anymore. And so when we are faced with two truths that seem to be at odds with each other, that God has brought his people close together, but Christian people are very difficult and and sin, what do we do with that? We turn to Christ. If we don't have Jesus, then individualism should reign supreme. It should be in all of our hearts. But in Christ, we are brought close together, and that is a good thing. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. This is Paul talking again. He has just described for them how they were dead in their sins, lost forever, and Christ came and made them alive. And then he says in verses 12 and 13, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You were apart from God. You were not a part of a people. You were apart from people. But now in Christ, you were far away, but now you have been brought near. Here's the, here's the extremely scaled down version of that verse. Remember at one time you were really difficult to deal with, but Jesus still loves you. And he brought you close to him. He didn't bring you close to him because you were so great. People are difficult to deal with, but Jesus still loves them, gave his life for them. We have disagreements. Each of us have had difficult conversations with people that just didn't end well. We see what sometimes we post on social media and it makes us cringe. And all of those things create distance between us. It is very human to see someone's sin and allow that to create distance between us. But that's not what God did. 
And as Christians now, because of that, we don't just look at others and see their sins. We see them through the lens of what God has done for us. We see people who are in in need of being saved, and they turned and trusted in Christ. And, And he now calls them beloved. He now calls them saints. So we don't just see sinners. We can see beloved brothers and sisters. People are hard, so we have to be willing to do the hard work of working through things sometimes. We have to be patient with one another. The things that God has given us to do for one another, they're not there just as nice things to do. They're there because we need them, because they're actually going to work. We have to be patient with one another. People sin against us, so we have to be ready to forgive. We have to be ready to work towards reconciliation. People are going to find ways to divide themselves, so we have to be ready to pursue peace and unity. We see men and women in church that we would never choose to spend time with. We would probably never put together this group of people. We would never put it together on our own. But in Christ, we start to see the beauty and the diversity of people that God brings together. In verse 4 of Psalm 122, David now says, that is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord. David rejoiced. All of this is what caused him to rejoice. David rejoiced because of the the diversity of God's people. David was a member of the tribe of Judah. That was his people. But he rejoices that God brings his people together from different tribes to be one, to be one tribe. Here in verse 4, the tribes are not referred to as the tribes of Israel, but the tribes of the Lord. This is the only place in the Bible where this specific phrase is used. It is very intentional on David's part to help us see that we are bound together in a way that is much stronger than our most natural ties. So one commentator wrote, the ties were more than those of blood or convenience. These were the tribes of the Lord. When the psalmist got to Jerusalem, he was joined by people from each of the different tribes of Israel. They had a different history. We're coming from different locations, different backgrounds, different situations, different burdens that were unique to each tribe. But here, they came together as one. They came together because of what God had done for them. The differences became less emphasized, and the fact that the Lord had brought them together became magnified. It became the very thing that now identified them. They were all there because of God's work in their life. And so now they were not identified as the tribes of Israel, but as the tribes of the Lord. They were all part of one tribe, and they had gathered together with one purpose. Jesus is building a church that is more beautiful than we can possibly imagine. There's not one of us that could build a church as beautifully diverse as Christ does. Jesus is building his church, and he is making it beautifully diverse. And we should learn to live and enjoy the reality that he has created to enjoy what he has done. It should make us rejoice. The closer we get to Jesus, the closer he brings us together, even with people that are different from us. God is infinitely creative. He is at work creating something that none of us could possibly even imagine. We have brothers and sisters across the world in different cultures that we don't share much in common with other than the fact that God has saved them by the power of the gospel. This family is made up of generations and generations before us, and if it is the will of God, it will be made up of generations after us. He brings people together, and all of those those tribes from every nation, every tongue, 
Every ethnicity, every skin color, every time period is going with one voice to praise the name above every name, is going to praise God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit forever and ever. The church didn't start with us. It won't end with us. It is not centered on us. And it is not limited by us. And all of that is really good news. God's church is diverse, and that should cause us to, to rejoice. And we should do everything we can to make sure there is, there is no prejudice or partiality in our heart. It has no place in the heart of the Christian. We should do everything we can to love one another as Christ has loved us, not just with those we're most comfortable with, but even with those people that look much different from us. We should rejoice that Christ has broken down every dividing wall that kept us from each other, and we should live as those who want to keep those walls where they are, broken in pieces on the ground. What brings us together? Christ alone. We have been made members of this church by Christ. And there will be a lot of different kinds of people, cultures, backgrounds, races, experiences, and those differences are beautiful. And in Christ, we are all brought together. When people look at the church, they should ask, how are those people so close to one another? How does that work? How do those people actually stay together? How do they love one another? And the answer from each of us in unity should be because of Christ alone. Jesus alone can unite people of varying backgrounds who hold varying opinions and varying gifts into one body and make them into one family. It is Jesus that makes us needed and, and, and in the gospel that reminds us that we are all in desperate need of something greater than us. So we should see the church and the people in it as an amazing gift that we should cherish, care for, and join together with to display the power, wisdom, and grace of God. Diversity is not an option for the church. It is a part of the church. It is a part of God's plan, and we should rejoice over it. He has brought us all together to do something, to praise the name of the Lord. Here in Psalm 122, we get a glimpse of what eternity will look like. All the tribes come together in verse 4, and it says, this is where the tribes of the Lord go to praise the name of the Lord. We get an eternal picture of this in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. We're told, after this, this is a glimpse into heaven. This is a glimpse into eternity. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. It says, after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. David rejoiced because of the diversity of God's people, and David rejoiced because God brought those people together for a purpose, to praise him forever. Years ago, I went with a number of, of guys to watch um, a movie in the theaters. Best movie experience I've ever had. Uh, we watched the movie uh, Creed. We went on a Tuesday because tickets were half price and every seat in that theater was taken up. And at the end of the movie, I'm going to spoil it for you, uh, Adonis Creed is, is fighting the boxing champion, uh, Ricky Conlon, who has never been knocked down in his career. And it's a long scene, and it's grueling. It's awesome. It was 12 minutes long. And, and the theater was filled in those 12 minutes with every kind of reaction possible during that fight. 
People screamed out as if they felt the pain every time somebody got hit. There was a grown man out of his seat throwing punches at the screen (laughs) as if he was Creed. And then they asked me to sit down. And, and as, as they get close to the end of the match, Creed just unloads on Conlon and knocks him down for the first time in his career. And when that happened, that theater erupted. Applause, cheering, every person in unison expressing their excitement over what they just saw. It was awesome. It was the right response to what we had been watching. We needed some way to express our joy and appreciation for what we just watched. But when it comes to praising God together, where we have the most reasons to sing, to cry out, to put our hands together, we often begrudgingly stand up, begrudgingly open our mouths to sing along with God's people as if you're doing Him some favor, as if you're doing some favor for the people leading worship up here. Brothers and sisters, it should not be this way. We start to sing together praises to God. We become all of a sudden, very reserved, and say things like, that's just not the way I express myself. I've seen some of you watching the NBA Finals. You can express your joy and excitement just fine. But even if you don't express yourself that way normally, we are celebrating something so much greater. This is not the NBA Finals. You were dead in your sins, raised up, and graciously given eternal life. Surely that is worthy of more praise than how we normally express ourselves. First Peter, again, helps us see the impacts of that today. In chapter 2, verse 9 of his letter, he writes, But you know who you are. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Know who you are. You are chosen. You, are, you have been made part of the priesthood. You are holy because God has made you holy. He says these things, why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He has made you who you are to proclaim the praises and excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness and into the beautiful and magnificent light of the gospel. There is a reason, there is a purpose behind God choosing you, making you his people. For Israel, for for the church in Peter's time, and for the church today, for you today as a Christian, you were chosen for a reason, for a purpose, to declare the praises of God. We don't just do that through song. We definitely don't just do that once a week. We do it with our lives, our mouths, our actions. But here in Psalm 122, there is a unique joy that we should have in being able to do it when we are gathered together with God's people. Our eyes are centered and focused on God and what he has done for us. And we should be reminded of that each Sunday. And that should lead us to praise. But then we also get to see the church. We get to see the people around us. We get to see people singing that same song of praise. We all have different stories of how God rescued us and redeemed us. We get to look around and see people who have different stories praising God. We get to look around and see people who have gone through immense suffering praising God. 
We get to see people like Shelby Murphy and Amelia Weehunt that have gone through this horrible disease of cancer, all the fear and uncertainty that comes with it, yet still praising God. You see couples that you know that have gone through prolonged infertility, wondering every day why this is happening to them, and yet they are still here praising God. You get to see men and women who have gone through loss, job loss, losses in their families, have experienced suffering, and yet they are still here with us praising God, and that should build our joy at being able to praise God together. That should build our joy at being brought close together. I was going to try to get through one sermon about the church without quoting Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I failed. Um, uh, so Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian, said this, God has prepared for himself one great song of praise throughout eternity, and those who enter the community of God get to join in this song. It is the song that the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy at the creation of the world in Job. It is the victory song of the children of Israel after passing through the Red Sea. It is the Magnificat of Mary after, after it was announced that she would, she would give birth to Jesus. It was the song of Paul and Silas in the night of prison. It was the song of the singers on the sea of glass after their rescue. It is the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. It is the song of the heavenly fellowship. When we sing, sing with all your heart. I don't know exactly what it looks like. I don't know exactly what it sounds like, but sing out with all your heart. Join this song that we will continue to sing into eternity. We should rejoice at being able to sing praises to God together. And then lastly for today, we should rejoice because God brings his people together to submit to him and to his word. David says in verse 5 of Psalm 122, there stand the thrones for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. This was the place that people gathered together rejoicing at the opportunity to praise God. But this was also a place where they gathered together to hear a word of judgment. They could bring their hard matters. They could bring their disagreements to the throne, to a ruler. And they would hear the word of the one sitting on the throne and they would submit to their judgment. They would all hear it together and they would submit to what, 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 what word came from the throne. The throne of David was meant to give us a glimpse of what we would have when Christ was raised up and seated at the right hand of God. This throne was meant to give us a, a glimpse of a truly righteous ruler giving us his word. We often struggle at times to believe God's word. We sometimes wrestle with our understanding of what the Bible means and how it applies to our lives. We all do. And God is patient and gracious to lead us as a father and as a shepherd. But he is also the reigning king over all creation. And when you are standing before the throne of the almighty God of the universe, we must humbly submit to his word, to his way. We often treat God's words like we get to decide which parts are important. We don't treat it as truly the word of God. Some of you know that for uh, over 20 years, I worked in the rare books and manuscript business. Uh, Pastor Raymond has described my job as a real-life Nicolas Cage um, from National Treasure. Um, 
which is exactly what I did. Um, <laughs> there, is, there is a first edition book uh, published in 1904 in red leather. Uh, I've only had it one time, and it is uh, quite scarce. It is entitled The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth, and it is more commonly known as the Jefferson Bible. While he was alive, uh, Thomas Jefferson made his own version of the Bible. He literally took several copies of the Bible in different languages, and he took a knife to it. Um, He would cut out the parts that he thought were extraordinary. Almost completely became a book of morals. Jefferson discarded with the miracles, discarded with the talk of the kingdom of God, discarded with any talk of, of, of Christ being God, and he left in the parts that resonated with him. In a letter to John Adams, he described his efforts. He said, in the New Testament, there is evidence that parts of it have proceeded from an extraordinary man, but that other parts of the New Testament are clearly the fabric of very inferior minds. It is as easy to separate those parts as to pick out diamonds from dunghills. There were diamonds in the Bible, but you had to be as smart as Jefferson to pick them out of the dunghills. This extraordinary man felt like he could figure out what were the good parts of the Bible. Peter Manso, a historian at Smithsonian, writing about Jefferson's Bible, said, Jefferson's is a hard gospel. The blind do not see, the lame do not walk, the multitudes remain hungry. Even those who look to Jesus for forgiveness of sins are left wanting. I'm sure most of us can agree that is extreme arrogance. A man that believes that he is the one smart enough to find the diamonds in the dunghill of the Bible. The arrogance of a man who wrote the Declaration of Independence, founded the University of Virginia. No offense, Wahoos. Uh, The man who served as president of these young United States believed he could create an improved version of the Word of God. The arrogance to take a knife to the Bible and cut out the parts that he found worthy of his life. And it is arrogance to think that we don't do the exact same thing. We just don't have the boldness to do it literally. We can't sit a Bible in front of us and cut it out. But we want to establish our own way, our own righteousness, our own throne. And so we create for ourselves a God that will let us do that. We take our mental scissors and we begin to cut away at God's word. We are so desperate to find the parts that resonate with us that we dispose of most of the Bible. We're so desperate to to be left with the parts that we can decide for ourselves, this is how I want to live my life. So we hold on to the label Christian. We want to hang on to parts of the Bible. That is not what a Christian does. This is not what we do as God's people and it is not what we do as his church. That is not the heart of one who knows that his gracious, patient Savior is also the creator, sustainer, and ruler of the universe. The heart of the Christian and the heart of the true living church is the heart of the prophet Jeremiah when he said, your words were found and I ate them, and your words became to me life. They became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. I know who you are, God, and you have called me. And so when I found your words, they became to me the joy and delight of my heart. 
We come together to hear God's word and to submit humbly to God's word. When we meet together, we should rejoice to see how our lives individually and as a church will be shaped by God's word. This is why our communities take the word of God and discuss it, and we see how we need to change in light of God's word. It's why we have things like the CBR Journal and and 3D groups so that we can listen to God's word and, and together be changed by it. It's why we have equipped classes on how to study and teach the Bible, because we as Christians see how desperately we need to hear God's word together. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying for his church, and he prays. Jesus is about to leave, and he is praying for his people and for us. He says these words, sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. You don't become more like God by picking a few sound bites that you like from the Bible. You are sanctified, made holy, made more like God by loving God's word, cherishing God's word, rejoicing in God's word, and submitting your will to God's word, submitting your life to God's word. This should cause us to love Jesus with all of our hearts. There is nowhere else to turn. His followers said, where else are we supposed to go? You have the words of eternal life. We need those words. So it should cause us to run to him, to cherish him, to love him. It should cause us to love Jesus with all of our hearts. Christ has made us one. Christ is praying on your behalf to be one as he and the Father are one. He paved the road to be able to come before God. He went and prepared for us a place to be in the presence of God forever. And he knocked down every dividing wall that we would put up between each other. And he calls us and invites us to leave those things behind, to leave our sin behind and enjoy him forever. Enjoy the family that he has made. Sing with them the eternal song. Feast with them and all that he has to offer us. Hear the word of the Lord together. He is the only way and that should cause us to to rejoice. I encourage you today, if you have never truly trusted in Christ, it's so good. He is so good. He is a feast waiting for you. It is the sweetest, greatest, most important thing that you will ever do. He is a family and a feast prepared for you that he is inviting you into. Please turn to him. There's a tent literally outside. I encourage you, go and find someone there. They can talk with you or connect you with someone to discuss what it really means to trust and follow Christ. And for those, for, for those of us today that are Christians, that have seen the beauty in that, that have trusted in that, we need to remember who we were before Christ and be reminded of all that Christ has done for us. And so each week we take communion together. We take the Lord's Supper together. And in a moment, you'll be invited to come forward. This week we, are, we have the bread and the juice that we have not done for a while. And so there's going to be people up here and in the back and in the, in, in the upstairs as well that will be holding the cup. And they'll be holding bread. And they will say to you the, the, the beautiful and wonderful and life-giving words the body of Christ offered for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. And you will be reminded by his church of, of the beautiful things that he has done for us. We have a gluten-free option over here. If you don't feel comfortable doing it, we still have the packets that we've used in the pack. 
Please be a part of this, though. Enjoy this. To be reminded of these things and to respond in this way is an important part of who we are and what we do. The body of Christ was offered for us and the blood of Christ was shed for us and now we have life because he has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So we're going to take a couple minutes in reflection and then we will focus on this. And I encourage you during this time, think about what God has done. Think about all that he has done in your life. What is keeping you from enjoying the closeness to him, but the closeness to his people as well. And seek after him. Look to him. Turn your eyes to him. And when you do, then you'll be able to see one another in such a, in such a beautiful, unique way. Let's pray together. Then we will reflect and take communion together. Father, we, we thank you so much for all that you have done. We praise you for all that you are. We praise you that you have created us, sustained us, rule over us. We thank you for sending your son to, to reconcile us to, 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 to you. Thank you that even in the midst of our sin, you still loved us. Even when we made ourselves enemies of you, you still loved us and cherished us and gave your son so that we can know you. We thank you for the gift of your church. We thank you for the gift of, of brothers and sisters in Christ, the help, the strength that they provide, the support that we can provide one another. I pray that as a church, we would see more and more the beauty of this, and live more in the reality of it. Father, we thank you for all that you've done. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together. We praise you for it all. We ask you to say in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Tim Avid at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.